We are almost at the end of 1 Samuel. We've been in this book most of this year. And uh, 1 Samuel, here's what we're going to do as we close out this book. At the end, at the end of the end of the book, the author of the book switches back and forth between these stories in rapid succession. He does that on purpose. He does that on purpose so that we can contrast all of these things about David and about Saul. And we can see these comparisons in stark color. Uh, not, and not at all, David good, Saul bad. He does a, a lot of comparisons to show us the similarity of David and Saul as well. And that works really well when you're reading because you get to the climax of the story. He switches gears and he goes on to the next. He switches to Saul in a different spot. And it's like page turner. You can't stop reading it. And you, I, that happened to me, you know, at the end of reading and prepping for these sermons. I kept having to read through the end of the book, the end of the book, because you want to know what happens next. So reading it, that works really well because you get those contrasts. But preaching through it, when we're slowing down and talking about all these different aspects, you don't get the same effect. So what we're going to do to close out the book of Samuel is we're going to go chronologically. We're going to hit this last uh, section about David. There's two chapters of that. Next week, we're going to do the contrasting two chapters on Saul and the end of Saul. And then chapter 30 is actually the end chronologically of the book, wrapping everything up. And so we'll end uh, with chapter 30. So that's that's what we're going to do. We pick it up today. Uh, last we read was David's encounter with Saul again, where he had an opportunity to kill him, and he didn't. Uh, he took the spear, the symbol of Saul's power instead, and gave Saul another opportunity to repent, uh, which was mind-blowing. And we're going to pick that up now. After David had just gone through that experience, this is where we pick it up now. Um, can I ask you if you're able to please stand out of respect for the reading of God's word? This is Samuel chapter 27 and, and into 29. And then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day at the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. And then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. And so David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maoch, the king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. And then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went out and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gizrites, Gerzites and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive. It would take away the sheep and the oxen, the donkeys, the camels and the garments and come back to Achish. And when Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negeb of Judah or against the Negeb of the Jeramalites or against the Negeb of the Kenites. 
And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. And in those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are going out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Ephek. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands. And David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines. And the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years since he deserted Saul, king of Israel? Who, since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this man, how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Well, then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me this, to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you, so go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day that I entered your service until now, that I may not go out and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then arise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. And so David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Uh, one of my favorite movies I saw last year was Martin Scorsese's Silence. What's, the, what I, the, the movie is uh, heavy, to say the least. The story, without giving too much away, the story is about two 17th century priests who go to Japan to try and find one of their, their mentor, who rumor had it had apostatized from the faith, and now had basically joined the Japanese and had left Christianity and renounced the priesthood altogether. And so these priests go there to find him, to discount the rumors. And as the story goes, when they finally do run into him and they find him, 
they find that he has apostatized. And as the story goes on, the shogun, who is so powerful, who is so desperate to stamp Christianity out of the land altogether, the persecution against the local Christians becomes so brutal and so intense, and the priests, Father Rodriguez is his name, has so, so zero power in the situation that he too eventually recants, renounces his faith. And then the story goes on from there. One of the reviewers, I read this review yesterday, it said, it said, it's not a movie that you like or hate, it's a movie that you experience and then you live with it, which is totally true. I mean, if somebody said, did you, I mean, I said one of my favorite movies, not because I loved the movie, it was so encouraging. It was a movie that was so intense and asked so many deep questions then left them unanswered, uh, so many deep, morally conflicting questions that you just don't usually think about or don't have answers to. And that was what was so deep and heavy about the film. For example, was it morally right for Father Rodriguez to refuse to recant his faith when he knew that it was costing prolonged torture and death to scores of Japanese Christians? What do you do in that situation? I mean, there's, no, oh, there's so many different answers you could think of, but which one is right? It's one of those questions that almost doesn't have an answer out of it. And the biggest one, though, biggest question at the end is that you're living with through the whole film and that's left with you afterwards, especially if you're a Christian, is, is did, did Father Rodriguez really renounce his faith? Or, or was the persecution just so brutal and so exhausting that although it, on the exterior it looked like he gave up, did he really just go so deep and go so undercover with his face that no one was able to see it except God? And that's what you're left guessing with at the end of the movie and you're guessing the psychological tension is where is he really at? Where is he really at? Did he really renounce the faith? Is the, is, the, is the moral confusion just so great and so exhausting that he gave up and just went deep inside? And you don't know. What, the question that leads you if you're a Christian is what happens to God's people when they are put in such hardship that they break down and appear to give up? And I think this passage answers that question for us. Because if you caught it, David has just given up. And the answer that we get out of this passage is that even when we give up on God, God never gives up on us. Even when we give up on God, God never gives up on us, his kids. Let's look at that. Let's look at that two parts at one part at a time, even though, even when, even when we give up on God. Look at, look at verse 1. And then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me to do than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. And then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. David just gave up. I mean, it's hard to imagine how or why that could happen. It seems to be you know, from our objective outside perspective, it seems like 
you know, we have been able to dig out over the last few weeks how God continued to give him encouragement, even in the hardship and the trial. But what we're not able to get into is the real experience of it that they were going through. They were in the desert. It was awful. It was prolonged. There were just days upon days upon days of sitting in, 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 the, in the brutal heat of the desert with not enough food, with nothing but hot water to drink and not enough of that. Everybody was anxious. Who knew what they were going to live tomorrow? So much pressure. Was it the time involved? Was it the stress that accumulated? Was it just cumulative trauma over and over and over again that he experienced, that his men experienced? Was it the extended responsibilities that he had? Now he's got 600 warriors in his armies and they've got families. That's a lot of hearts. One thing to hide in a cave when it's you and your homies It's another thing to hide in the cave when it's you, 600 men, and your wives and your children, and Saul is constantly coming at you like a tidal wave over and over again. It's, you can empathize with David. He, for whatever reason, he broke. And this is when he did that, when he left to go over to the Philistines and align himself in their allegiance what he said was, I'm not going to be king. Samuel lied. Jonathan lied. Abigail lied. Saul lied. Promises of God are not going to come true. And since those promises aren't going to happen, I might as well find some new promises and I'm going to go and enjoy the luxury and the safety and the comfort and the stability of the Philistine army. And I can just do what I'm good at. Just go be a soldier. Wipe out cities. Bring tribute back to, the Lord, to my Lord, Akish the king. He broke, gave up. Crazy. And the fallout from that you see, David's running this game on a quiche, right? He's raiding desert raiders. He's raiding the enemies of God's people, which is legit for him to do, although he's supposed to wipe out everything. He's not supposed to take that tribute for himself or give it to his king. He's did this, in, in that, he's doing the same thing that Saul did that got Saul in trouble in the first place. And he's lying to a quiche. And when you do that, you live in that tension of always when he has to kill everyone in all of these raids because he's afraid someone's going to tell a quiche that he's lying. He's not really attacking the towns of Judah. And he's under constant fear and anxiety that he's going to get found out. And he's living in that tension. And in the midst of that tension and in that fear and getting put in these compromising positions, He's making one moral compromise after another. That's the fallout from that decision and that's the place that David finds himself in. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can relate to getting to the place where you are so tired, you're so discouraged by repetitive failure, you're so discouraged by repetitive, uh, it just seems like trouble, the trouble's not ending. God is not showing up. God is not taking care of you. God is not doing what you think God is supposed to be doing. You lose sight of the reality that our trials are from God 
and we think that our trials are meaningless suffering. I think that was David's mindset, really. We lose sight of the fact that the trial that God puts us through is for our good, and we start thinking that it's meaningless, that it's just meaningless suffering. That's when things really start to break down, and you sit there and start telling yourself, we are never going to be financially stable. I am always going to be alone. I am never going to overcome this sin. To hear what David, at the very beginning, the first line, it tells us one of the big reasons that David was driven into despair. It said, and David said in his heart. That means David was telling himself the vicious and poisonous lies that were cycling through his mind were, Saul's going to kill me, promises aren't coming true, God has failed. That's what was cycling through his mind. Maybe, you, maybe you've gotten there. Maybe you've been in positions where you just couldn't stop that cycle of thought from happening. You are so discouraged with God that your brain just kind of took over and that poisonous talk to yourself was, is God good? Is God even there? Does God care about me at all? Uh, man, I have been there. <laughs> there, you know, church planning is really hard, Right? especially when you have all these idols surrounding it, right? (laughs) Uh, Church planning is very, very hard. Satan is very cool with giant churches that put people under the law. Perfectly okay with that. Satan is perfectly okay with giant churches that make Christianity about success in this life and the Christian hope being accomplishing the American dream. Satan's perfectly okay with that. Satan's also perfectly okay with tiny churches that are irrelevant and do not and cannot reach the culture, the broader culture or the broader church at all. He's perfectly okay with tiny little irrelevant churches dotting the landscape. What he's not okay with are churches that have the gospel, preach the gospel, and are, incur- and are reaching out to the broader church and to the broader culture. That's dangerous. And when that happens, it is constant pressure and stress and emotional chaos as Satan gets into every relationship and tries to break things down. It's really hard. And there have been times when I have quit. Literally gave up. There was a time last year, like we, we, got, we got through such a hard time. We went on vacation for the first four days of vacation. Every time I thought about praying, I said, I am not talking to you. I'm serious. I was like, I am not talking to you. There was a time, another time, more recently when things were caving in, it seemed like everything was going south and my mind just would not stop. It's going, it's, this, is, this whole thing is blowing up. There are forces that are pressing in, trying to force us into being one more irrelevant tiny church and I was so discouraged that I would just wake up in the middle of the night and be just churning through my mind, right? (sighs) 
And you know what happened? All that, this is going to fail, this is going to fail, talk that I had in my heart got to the point where it was so bad, I didn't know what I was going to do. And, and, and Nisa comes home at the end of a Monday, and I'm like telling her what's up and why I'm so discouraged. And out of the blue, she looks at me and she goes, you know what? God is going to rescue us. That's all she said. That's all she said. God is going to rescue us. And I don't know what happened, but it was like a switch flipped in my heart. And I was like, God's going to rescue us. And I started walking around. I was like, God is going to rescue us. You know what? God is going to rescue us, man. <laughs> what happened? What happened? Nothing changed. The situation, the circumstances did not change. But my heart changed because God's word got implanted in my heart and I started to repeat that because God's word has more power than my feelings. God's word has more power than my emotions. God's word has more power than the way the devil wants to discourage me, the way the devil wants to discourage you. You can take one little tiny piece of God's word, promise, promise that God has fulfilled over and over and over again in the course of the history of Israel and the church. God rescues us. That's what he does. And that sunk into my heart and it changed everything. God's word took root and it became more powerful than my feelings. Now, as we get to the end of this story, we see David's heart has has drifted. Drifted farther than he ever thought possible. How far? Look at this. At the end of this scene, David is marching into battle against Israel. He's calling and he's he's, he's marching into battle against God's people. And king, the king Achish, you can hear the voice of Satan savoring his victory at the end of uh, saying when he's convinced that David is with him, he says, you will be my servant forever. And there's like big, big picture uh, demolition that comes with that statement because if David turns, if David becomes the servant of Achish, there's no kingship, there's no messianic, there's no Davidic line, there's no messianic fulfillment, there's no Jesus, there's no salvation. You and I are caught in our sins if that happens. And here's, here's where it gets all silent-esque on us, the psychological tension. Where's David at? You can't tell. You cannot tell. On the one hand, he's arguing with Achish, like, let me go. I'll show you what I can do for my Lord, the King not my Lord Yahweh. And he seems dead set in it, like he has resigned himself to his fate. He's going to be a mercenary forever. That's just how it is. Let's get down with it. On the other hand, maybe David has just caught himself in this trap. He's been caught in the game he's running. He's been off in the country at Ziklag running raids on desert raiders, telling Achish that it's the Israelites He's living a good life, he's safe, he's free from Saul. Constant tension, constant fear, moral compromise, and boom, now it's caught up with him when Achish says, hey, check it out, you're coming with me, and we're going to go fight 
against the Israelites, what does he do? He's caught. He can't say, uh, I can't. Because I guarantee you the Philistines would be far more competent in, 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 in erasing David from the face of the earth than Saul had been. You don't know. Where is David at? Has he really turned? Has his love for, for God and for God's people because of the moral confusion just gone so deep inside him that only God can see it? And they don't tell us. But what's really important, that's not the important thing. The important thing is to, is to know what happens next. And what happens next is this, that even though David has given up on God, God doesn't give up on David. Which tells us that even though we may give up on God, God never gives up on us. Let me, let me read you one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Not the story you want to lead with in an evangelistic meeting, but nonetheless, these are the kind of stories I love in the Bible. Check it out. Uh, this is Elisha, uh, Prophet Elisha and the Bears, if you're familiar with the story. <laughs> The prophet Elisha, Elisha went up from there to Bethel and while he was going up on the way, some boys came out of the city and were jeering at him saying, go up you bald head, go up you bald head. And he turned around and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord and two she-bears ran out of the woods and tore the 42 boys to pieces. The Old Testament. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Not... Like I said, not, the, not what you want to lead with in a uh, seeker, uh, you know, seeker meeting. <laughs> not what you want to lead with. There, one of my favorite atheist sites actually made a t-shirt based on this verse with Smokey the Bear, and it said, don't mess with God, kids, or bears will eat you. <laughs> Why do I love that story? Why do I love that story? Because when I read it, as I was studying it, it light bulb went off. I was like, all, most times, God's divine activity in the world is shrouded behind stuff that looks totally natural. God's saving action in the world, most of what God does in the world, it comes under the heading of providence. He's not interrupting natural law and creating miracle. Most of the time, He's so powerful uh, that he is in his providence and the outworking of his will on earth. Most of what he does is truly divine intervention, but it's done in, in ways that are so natural you wouldn't even know unless you knew. Now, why am I telling you that story? What does it have to do with this? Uh, look at verse 29. Uh, two, uh, no, sorry, chapter 29, two and four. Listen to what happens as David is marching off to battle. David and his men are passing on in the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines says, what are these Hebrews doing here? And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send that man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him and he shall not go down with us to battle. Now let's review. Let's review last the last four chapters of David in the wilderness. David's in, uh, David is in a cave and Saul comes in. He has the opportunity to kill Saul, to attack the Lord's anointed, and he doesn't do it. 
Yea, David. He says to himself, I cannot force God's promises to come early by committing sin. God, it is not a green light from God if it requires me to engage in some sort of sin or get dirty in order to make it happen. And then the next chapter, next chapter, David is insulted by a rich man, Nabal, who's presented very much like a king, and he completely forgets the lesson and starts marching off into battle. He's going to wipe this man and his army from the face of the earth. He's completely forgotten the lesson to not take his salvation into his own hands, to not seek vengeance and to not incur blood guilt. He's on his way to do it. God sends restraining grace with Abigail, comes and, and, and talks to him and her graciousness keeps him, stays him from doing the evil that he would otherwise wanted to do. And then the next chapter is what? Saul is now, so David sees Saul in his camp and Saul has, David has another opportunity to kill Saul, sneaks into his camp and we realize that God has put a deep sleep over the entire army of Saul's army, creating that opportunity for David to go in and do the right thing, to encourage him. Yea, David. And now, David has put himself in this place where he is now again marching out to attack Saul and attack God's people and God's army. It's the same thing four times in a row. David does good. David fails. David, uh, David, David fails, but God sends restraining grace to pull him out of it. David does good, and now again, he's marching in to do battle, and who saves him? How does, how does God save David from doing the evil that David is completely content to do? The Philistines to the rescue. <laughs> Looks totally natural. You would never, ever know that it's God's saving action behind this, that he uses the enemies of God's people to save David. There's this quiet power of God behind the natural scenes that you would never know. This whole chapter, you know this whole cha- these whole two chapters, God is only mentioned once, and it's mentioned by Akish, the king. The only time the word Yahweh is spoken, it's by this pagan king. The Bible writers, they do this all the time when it's a particularly godless time, when, the, when, when God's people are very far away from God. They'll do that. There's no mention of God. Usually the narrator will put in some like behind-the-scenes comment or the Lord was doing this or this is what the Lord had in, you know, in store. None of that. It's completely devoid of the mention of God except for the pagan king says God's name. If you didn't know, you would think God wasn't here. But if you look at the context, all of those lessons that David was learning, God saving David, saving David, saving David, you see here God is saving David through the Philistines in these completely natural ways. And the second thing, that's startling enough, that God sends the lords of the Philistines to the rescue. But the second startling thing is this. Catch this. The second startling thing is that God is saving David at all. 
did you catch where the, the Philistines, where David is headed to muster with his 600 fighting men? They're all, they're all going to, uh, to effect. Do you remember, does that ring a bell? The place effect was in 1 Samuel chapter 4 when the Philistines gathered for battle against God's people and God's people were so wicked they took the Ark of the Covenant and used it as a magic trick or as an idol to try to beat the Philistines and, and God took the Ark into captivity. That was bad. But now God's anointed king is in the ranks of the Philistine army themselves going to battle against God's people. The author tells us that they're going to affect to let us know this is how bad it's gotten. It's almost without hope. You thought the ark thing was bad? Now God's people and his army are actually traitors. They have left God's service and are fighting against God's people. Why? Why would God save David at all? You know, the common... The common denominator in all these stories is not David's obedience. Uh, The common denominator in all those stories I just said is God coming in and saving Saul over and over again. And here's one of the contrasts that we see. Saul has completely flamed out in his own way. And We're going to see next week, Samuel says to Saul, the reason this happened is because God has turned away from you and has become your enemy. And yet David flames out in a different way and God uses the Philistines to save him and to pull him out of it again. Why? Why does God do that? Why isn't there strict justice? Why isn't the same justice for David as for Saul? Why isn't God repaying David for his works? Why is it not David, you know, the right, the Proverbs say all over, the righteous are always win, are blessed, the wicked always are cursed, and under the judgment of God, David is getting ready to kill God's people, and God returns blessing for that. Why is it? And the answer, the big answer, is because it was God's good pleasure to do so. It wasn't because David was any better than Saul. It was because God had chosen to save David. God had chosen to save him. Uh, you know, and, and David understood this in his writings. We see it. We see in Psalm 32, David says, David defines for us how God defines who are the righteous, who are the godly, and who are the upright. It's not the righteous in and of themselves, it's those who are repentant. It's the repentant sinner. The sinner who is repentant before God. That's who's righteous. That's who's godly. That is who is upright. And David also knew that it wasn't so much that he was pursuing God, but more that God was pursuing him. In Psalm 23, beautiful psalm, uh, the Lord is my shepherd. At the end, it says that, that I know that the Lord will pursue me all the days of my life. 
David knew that he only had a hold on God because God had a hold on him. Now, why am I bringing this out? Uh, because we can have a doctrinal statement that God chooses his people. We can even have, you know, passages in the New Testament. We can formulate that doctrine. But I want to bring out and show you that this is everywhere in the text. Every story. All the patriarchs from Adam, Abraham, Moses, Noah, David, everybody. Same story. God chooses them, his people, for salvation. So that when we get all those stories down, you see it in action. You see it actually happening with all of God's people from the top down when we get to passages that are super clear on this stuff like Ephesians 1, it becomes really clear what God's saying. Listen, this is Paul talking in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What are those? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace so that he would be shown to be gracious, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. The reason... God saved David is because God chose David to save him. Which tells us that Jesus purchased that salvation that Paul's talking about for us at such a great cost because that was what was necessary for him to do. He had to do that. We needed that we were not going to be chosen by God because of our own righteousness or because of our own works. The reason Jesus suffered through the cross, the reason we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to his grace is because there was no other way. Everybody who is saved only comes into it because God applies the righteousness of Jesus to them and brings us in to him. If you're here and you've got a hold on God, it's because God has a hold on you. And what does that do? Why does God show us this? Why is it every story in the Bible echoes this? Every story we read in the Bible echoes the failure of the God's people from top down. It's because God is destroying our hero worship. It's destroying our hero worship of other people. Uh, showing us that even the stars of the Old Testament, even the best of the best, still had big issues. And that's true of all of us, man. I mean, even, 
you know, I don't know, we think, I, you know, you always think that you're going to reach this point. We talked about this last week. You're going to reach this point where you're holy, or at least you've got most of, you know, big things under control. But, you know, the reality is that even the best of God's people, even the, 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 the most mature, godly, wonderful people I know have big holes. At first, it's kind of hard to see. You're like, ah, oh, that means I have big holes. <laughs> but it's true. Some of the most godly, wonderful, in every other way, mature Christian people are completely blind to big holes, completely blind to racism, completely blind to gluttony complete big holes, what they are. We can't, usually you can't see it. I can't see my own. It, but it's what God is showing us. Look, everybody's got big holes. You need, you need the salvation of Jesus. It's the only way. And God has brought you into salvation is because God has chosen to bring you in and give it to you. And so it, it crushes our our own hero, hero worship of ourselves too. And we're, God breaks us so that we can see the reality of Christ, so we can know that God's love for us is so unbreakable and so secure that we can rest in that. Not so that we can go off and sin with impunity and say, whoop, I got this, because the Spirit wouldn't allow us to do that, but because because God does want these beautiful things for us. God does want us to love him freely. And we could never do that unless we were first assured of God's love for us. Otherwise, our love for God would be meritorious. It would be self-serving. Think about that. You could never freely love God until you knew that God loved you first. God wants us to wage war on our sin. But if we're not sure of God's love for us and we're always doing that in fear and intention rather than struggling against it in certain knowledge of the victory we already have. God wants us to cultivate virtue but cultivate it not as an act of self-preservation but as an act of worship. We worship God with our service because we know he loves us. Because we know that we are secure. So when you hit those moments in life when you become so despairing, you feel like you're going to give up, you feel like I want to check out, you feel you want to give up on God's promises for some other promises that may look better at the moment. This passage tells us a couple of things, that the hardships that we face are not meaningless suffering. It's God's care for us. It's Christ-like shaping in our lives. It tells us that what we say to ourselves has real power and that we should trust God's word and what it says is true about us over our own feelings. Uh, And it says that you belong to God because he chose you. And you will continue to belong to God because he chose you. (laughs) And it tells us that if we do break and give up, that God will never give up on us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, your word tells us things that are more beautiful than we would ever make up. 
Our hearts are hardwired to present ourselves before you as just and beautiful and righteous. But the beauty of your word, Lord, is it's constantly cracking that shell and showing us what we really are, not so that we would be ashamed in it, so that we would know that even in that, you still absolutely love us and that you are with us and that you will continue to be with us. So Lord, help us when we become frustrated, when we become discouraged, when our minds start to overtake us and we start to tell ourselves all kind of lies about you. Help us, Lord, not to think about our righteousness not to think about what we're doing, but to abandon all that and remember what you've done and who you are and the beauty of your character and that Christ came and served us not in spite of our sin, but because of them to bring us into new life. Help us to hold on to that, Lord. As we approach the table, help us to hold on to that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.